0: Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime.
1: And a wacky start right there. I have no idea what just happened, but welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And a great trio tonight, although only two uh, have popped up on our screen that you see there but we are awaiting uh Wendy Murphy. We'll just jump right uh right into it. So all eyes for the last couple of weeks have been on a Stamford, Connecticut courtroom uh for the trial of Michelle Traconis. She is one of two people still facing charges in the disappearance of New Canaan mother Jennifer Farber Dulos. Uh this again has I think we're on day 11 tomorrow. Today was day 10, day 11 tomorrow. It was almost five years since Jennifer Farber Dulos, who was a writer and a mom of five, vanished back on May 24, 2019. She was going through a very bitter divorce and custody battle with her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos. uh, And Michelle Traconis was Fotis' then-live-in girlfriend. She's accused of conspiring with Dulos to murder Jennifer Farber, uh, uh, who died. uh, By the way, um, he committed suicide back uh, January 20th in his garage as he was awaiting trial. Um, And that is where we are at. Now, look, she is here, Wendy Murphy. Uh, She serves as adjunct professor of Sexual Violence Law at New England Law Boston, where she also co-directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. She is a former visiting scholar at Harvard Law. She is smart as hell and speaks her mind. She does so without uh, any apologies, and I love it about her. Then we've got Darby Fox in the Irish Green, She is a child and adolescent family uh, therapist with over 25 years of experience with children and families from diverse backgrounds. Her first book, Rethinking Your Teenager, I might have to do that in a couple of years, Shifting from Conflict and Control to Structure and Nurture to Raise Accountable Young Adults, uh, that book received critical acclaim. She's also an expert on parenting and family topics. She's been featured on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, and she lives in that part of Connecticut. And she can tell us about that in a moment. And last but not least, he hasn't been on the show in a while, Robert Bobby McDonald. He was both a state of Connecticut and United States probation officer and spent over 20 years with the United States Secret Service. His duties included presidential, vice presidential, and dignitary protection divisions in Washington, D.C. Upon retirement, he worked for a little organization called the NBA, as in the basketball organization, and now teaches at the University of New Haven. Um, Without further ado, let's bounce into it. Just a reminder, you can uh, support us at Patreon, YouTube, and uh, we now have a new channel that's being helmed by the COE, and it's this right here best trials in true crime. And that's where you can find uh, the Michelle Traconis trial on that channel. If you haven't subbed yet, please do. And uh, the most important story I've ever told surviving the survivor, the story about my mom. It's like Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch album, except on crack. Mitch wrote a blurb for this book. You're going to see that blurb on the back of the book. Um, I'm excited. It's going to be out mid uh, may and Carmen and I are starting to uh, voice this next week. Wendy Murphy, uh, we'll get into all the details as we go, but let me start with you. the c o e and I were talking shop. She's been watching this trial every single day, and I've been trying to uh, for full disclosure. I've had a little cold. Uh, got it from my rotten little kids. but um the, the 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 issue that keeps coming up is this seems more like a trial for Fotus Dulos than it does for Michelle Traconis. Is this an uphill battle for the state?
2: Well, First of all, just because it's a trial about what Fotis Duelist did doesn't make it an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just so happens that when you charge somebody with conspiracy, you have to prove the underlying crime. And on top of that, that there was a conspiracy, that there was an agreement, that there was an overt act and so forth. So they do have to prove that a crime occurred and that she conspired in some fashion uh, to at least cover it up. She's charged with a variety of crimes, but the, you know, the most serious one is this conspiracy charge. Um, the good news is no one disputes that Jennifer is dead. And I don't think anybody with a brain disputes that she was murdered. So going into the case, I think the question in part becomes, uh, will there be any doubt that it was Fotus who killed her? Uh, I don't see that. I don't see... You know, a plan B suspect. And where there's no plan B suspect, I think the jury will pretty quickly put that aside and say, "Okay, we've got the murder, Fotis did it. Now let's really focus on her role. And that's where the, that's where it's good news for the prosecution, because proving Traconis's role, it, you don't have to be precise about exactly what she did. You just have to show that she had involvement. And from what I know, and I know the case has uh, many days to go, if not weeks to go, um, the most important evidence I've heard thus far is, number one, the um, so-called alibi list, which her name is all over it. I don't know if they, they made sure it was her handwriting or fingerprints or whatever. They know she wrote it. And it really is um, a, a moment-by-moment alibi. Like, you know, make sure we have our stories straight when all this blows up. That's pretty damning in terms of Traconis's role, right? Because why else is she, what is she doing noting every minute of what she did every moment of that day that Jennifer was killed? It's It's consciousness of guilt on steroids. It's just such a, you know, a powerful piece of evidence. But then there's also the physical evidence that juries like to see, which is, and we only heard about it, I don't think it's in yet, but I saw it reported, and I you know, assume it's going to come in soon, that Traconis' DNA is on some of the garbage bags that were seen on videotape uh, being dumped by Fotis, but being dumped into dumpsters after the murder. Um, and some of the material found in those bags includes... Uh, Jennifer's undergarments, blood, you know, you know, not like the daily trash with some Mm -hmm. apple cores. And what's the innocent explanation for how Michelle Traconis's DNA got on bags that had basically dead body evidence in them? She might say, and I would say this, I suppose, if I were her lawyer, well, you know, she was around the house sometimes. So maybe she reached in and touched a bag when she went to do some of the trash. I, I don't know what they're going to say. There are sometimes innocent explanations for how someone's DNA gets in a certain location. But those two things alone are pretty strong. And I have no doubt we're going to hear a lot more than that.
1: Yeah. And I'm um, just pulling this up because Wendy mentioned it briefly, but uh, this is Uh, an evidence photo, 502U, of her bra and shirt, and then they actually physically held it up in court, and you can see it is, this is Jennifer Dulos' bra, Farber Dulos, and it is sort of crusted in blood. That was very difficult, understandably, for the family, and I believe this was uh, brought into evidence in in the trial uh, either yesterday or the day before, but we'll circle back to that. Uh, Just Wendy mentioned it, so I wanted to bring it up. This, of course, is Jennifer Farber Dulos, and you see those five cute, precious little kids, Darby Fox, they're with uh, their grandmother in New York. Um, you're not connected per se, but you live in this area and you know certain people in common. Am I, do I have that right?
3: Yes. Um. Actually, my I'm about a um, mile and a half from the house that Jennifer was renting. And uh, my kids had gone to the same little neighborhood school, um that her kids were enrolled in um there's no overlap as far as timing my kids are older <laughs> but um the whole community here it was was everywhere with the police i mean it's just a little connecticut suburban town and all of a sudden it's covered with police and helicopters and that's where her her car was found in the local park and you know it's very yeah.
1: familiar uh- and Darby, um, you're obviously a family therapist. What's the future for these five kids? Not only did they lose their mother to a murder, but the father is uh, no longer with us. Um, what does their future portend?
3: Um, these five kids are very lucky that they had a very intact family and the grandparents, the grandmother has taken them on. They are not separated. And, um, she was very connected to a school in Brooklyn and they've been able to stay together. Um, you just, it's got to have an overarching influence on their lives, the rest of their lives and, um, very hard to understand. And they're still pretty young. So it's hard to know what direction. A couple might be okay. Someone might have, um, you know, problems with drugs or alcohol. It, it'll be far-reaching. They'll never get away from it. They can be healthy um, because they do have a family, extended family, that are taking care of them and love them. But it's it's tragic. Uh
1: shout-out to Dwayne Harrison. Detroit, who just gifted 10 memberships. Uh, He did that yesterday. Too generous. Thank you very much. Bobby McDonald, you teach at the University of New Haven. Um, How big a story is this in Connecticut where you are? Um, Is it, you know, so to speak, front page news? Even though I don't know if that really exists anymore. Uh, What kind of spotlight is there in the state of Connecticut?
0: Yeah, Joel, great to be back with you. And if I can just say that I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Wendy said with respect to uh, her take on things. I'm not an attorney, but um, spot on with the DNA of uh, Trigonus on the uh, bags. It's my understanding that there's some of that, and there might be. There might be an explanation for that. But as we get farther and farther along on things here, and we put those pieces of the puzzle together, the reconstruction of what happened here, I think those things are going to get magnified and start to solidify a lot of different things. Uh, it is top of the news here. Um, it is. Uh, on the local stations here, it's uh, all over the papers, obviously. Um, I'm about uh, 25 minutes from that area, just up the road. So uh, we are uh, knee-deep in it all day, all the time. Uh, it's uh, You can obviously watch the trial. Um, the courthouse is is a busy place with this going on. Again, as uh, this happening in small-town Connecticut, small-town New England, as Darby said, that uh, this has taken on a life of its own, and we're all kind of uh, watching it every day uh, take place. <laughs>
1: Uh, Wendy Murphy, back to you. So, one of the things, uh, you know, this is the first trial that we've streamed live on best trials in true crime. And uh, one of the comments that's made consistently is that this defense attorney, his name is John Schoenhorn, uh, he objects all the time. He's constantly interrupting the flow with objections. Can that be problematic with a jury that wants to be listening and constantly interrupted? or is that just the job?
2: Yeah, you know, and it's a risky thing to do. Having been a prosecutor, um, I certainly understand why defense attorneys like to interrupt the narrative on the prosecution side. Once the narrative is, um, uh, let's just say, out there, and and it feels like common sense, and you're getting a robust picture where they're not just Presenting evidence in a very technical sense, but they're giving the jury um, a scene, you know, a sense of, of how it all happened, a visual, if you will. You know, a, a, a verbal, almost like a little a movie, plays in the jury's mind when, there, when there's a narrative. Um, so as a prosecutor, I always wanted a narrative to be the, the vibe in the room. And of course, what do we know about what defense attorneys do when they object a lot? Objection narrative. <laughs> I always found that curious because since when is providing a narrative an objection? It should be, it should be a narrative, right? The witnesses who have the ability to, to narrate are a lot more effective than the ones who very mechanically say, you know, evidence piece A, evidence piece B. So I, I always it always bothered me. I'd say, why is there an objection called narrative? Why is that objectionable? It should be rewarded. But the reality is, when a prosecution's case um, is coming in smoothly and is kind of growing like a like you know a coloring book where you're you're adding more colors and you're about to finish the page, um, there's nothing good for the defense in that. And and so interrupting is a tactic. And it's a tactic that works because uh, juries can get distracted and they might say, uh, well, geez, I forgot where we were, or I don't remember where this piece of evidence is in context with the other stuff we heard. The interruptions are potentially, um, you know, good for the defense in that sense. But here's the downside. Juries get angry when they think they're being disrespected and a juror who wants to listen and who sees a defense attorney object especially when the objections are overruled which i believe is largely the case here the judge is overruling most of the objections the jury starts to think oh this guy is objecting because his client is guilty and he's got nothing else to do except try to distract us you know the old saying if you don 't have the facts, argue the law if you don 't have the law, argue the facts if you don 't have either, pound the table. Well, objecting frivolously just to create um, interruptions for some you know strategic purpose is is kind of like pounding the table you You want the jury distracted because then they can 't put the pieces together in a cohesive sense which in, which is it will incline them toward um, a guilty verdict assuming they can at one point see the the picture fully for what it is see prosecutors always argue this too at the end of their cases not always but it's very common for a prosecutor to say um this is like a puzzle you know uh mm-hmm. this is not a direct evidence case there's no one here to testify i saw uh, you know FOTUS kill her. And then I thought Traconis help him. That's not going to happen. So it's an indirect evidence case or a circumstantial evidence case. And they tend to be very strong cases. I think anyone who says because it's a circumstantial evidence case that makes it weak, that's wrong because almost all murder cases are successfully prosecuted and they're almost invariably circumstantial evidence cases. And look, Most rape cases are direct evidence cases where the eyewitness says what happened, and those are less successful. So we have to be clear about this, that a circumstantial evidence case doesn't make it a weak case. But what it does mean is that prosecutors have to think about the case like a jigsaw puzzle, and they will often argue at the end of the case in their closing statement, this is a puzzle, and we put all the pieces together for you, and now you know exactly what happened, and let me explain it to you. Now, they can't do that right now. A prosecutor can't stand up and turn to the jury and say, let me explain to you how the the fingerprints on the trash bags relate to the blood found on the bra. They can't do that because that's argument. But they can do that at the end. It's just that it's frustrating sometimes for a prosecutor to have to wait until all the evidence is in before they can turn to the jury and say, now, let's talk about how this picture has come together piece by piece. And I'll tell you the pieces I gave you how they fit together and why the only picture you can come up with, and this is why you have to find her guilty, is that she very much was involved and she conspired um, and there is no other conclusion. That's really where I see this case going. And I don't know all the evidence yet. I hope there's more than what we have so far, because I think if it ended today, I'm not sure there's enough. I, I think there's a lot to explain about the bits we've heard so far, but as Draconis goes, I would want more, and I have no doubt there's going to be a lot more.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you up to this point. I don't know if they've uh, put the proverbial uh, nail in the coffin, but um, Jerry Michael raised a good point, friend of the show, to Bobby McDonald. And this goes to what Wendy was just talking about, about this, you know, indirect slash circumstantial evidence. Uh, Bobby, how do you answer this? How do they prove that Michelle knew uh, what was in those bags that we, he was throwing out Did the police interviews with her show that it was hard to hear. We started to hear some of the police uh, interviews and interrogations today. I'm going to defer to you on that later on, because uh, I'm sure you've been in in those types of interview situations. But how do you go from Fotis Dulos committed this crime to Michelle
0: Traconis knew exactly what was happening? Yeah. Following along with Wendy just said you, you're basically going to take these different pieces of the puzzle these different nuggets that they have uh, that they're going to place onto the dining room table where we're putting the puzzle together and then let everybody know when we get all the pieces there that these things are all interconnected. Uh, You're going to show how, those pieces of evidence or those things were disposed of, where the people were at the time, what they were doing, how they might have been connected to it, what they might have known, what they don't know. Is there any DNA on it? Is there any other pictures? Were there films of what's going on? Different surveillance videos along the way. Again, all different things that are going to relate to the same question that was just asked by putting those pieces together. So, again, there is a lot more to go here to solidify all of the information that they want to get out. Do we have a specific piece of evidence or nugget that's going to get that answer? Maybe, maybe not. But all of those others put together, totality of the circumstances are going to bring it all together.
2: And and by the way, let let me just take one second here. It's a good question, except the real answer is they don't have to prove that Traconis knew what was in the bags to win. If they did, that would be a really strong case but they don't have to they're not their hands are not tied in terms of how they prove conspiracy um they might never prove that she knew what was in the bag but they'll have all these other things that show uh she was engaging in behavior that really didn't have an innocent veneer to it you know that that it was not just weird but come on, you know, why, what are you touching garbage bags for? And they happen to have a murder victim's clothing in there. Um, I think one of the interesting things will be what the defense says to try to explain her fingerprints, because if it's a cockamamie excuse, and it often is, it often is, uh, that could really push the jury toward a guilty verdict, even if they might not otherwise have felt strongly about guilt because They don't like being insulted. It reminds me of the uh, Michael Skagel case, which I know I was working for NBC at the time, I think, when it happened or when when some aspect of it happened. And uh, it's a similar, you know, similar thing in the sense that there's a lot of money involved, at least on on one side of the equation. Interesting and importantly, in this case, the money's on the victim side. That's not very common. And you can bet that is helping. The prosecution do a lot of what it ought to be doing, because and I hate to say this, it's not like prosecutors and police investigate better if the people um, that are victimized are rich. But the reason it can help to be a very wealthy victim or from a wealthy family is that prosecutors um, know that the victim's family is going to hire their own PIs anyway. So, you know, they don't want to be embarrassed. And, you know, all of a sudden the victim's PI shows up at the police department and says, look at all this stuff I found, you bungling fools. Why don't you know anything about this stuff? So I think it's interesting because it reminds me of the Skakel case in the sense that there was a lot of money on the other side. But I think one of the reasons Michael... Scaple was eventually convicted. And I, I think there was a good amount of evidence against him. I wouldn't say it was overwhelming, but a really important piece was that when he was confronted, and I think it was the family's PI that did this, when he was confronted years later, because nobody was charged with the murder of Martha Moxley for many years, um, and when he, when they, but they never gave up. So the family hired a PI who went to Michael and made some uh, false statement about how, you know, they have DNA on her body, which was found under a tree. On the Skakels property. And Michael said something to the effect of, yeah, you know, I was up in the tree masturbating and it just happened to fall on her clothing. And the first time I saw that, I said, oh, you know, if I was a prosecutor and that was in my pile of evidence, I'd charge the guy because it's so stupid (sighs) to say that. And I do think that's part of why the case ended up, uh, you know, going against him. So, Mm -hmm. yes, you have to come up with an innocent explanation for what is presumptively nefarious evidence. But if it's a cockamamie explanation, if it doesn't make sense, if the jury thinks you're insulting them or you think they're stupid, um, it could become an extra thumb on the scale against you. So Mm -hmm. the defense has to come up with something.
1: And yeah, well, right now, I mean, Bobby, right
2: that they could say that wouldn't make me laugh out loud
1: yeah well bobby right now they're basically saying that uh police were using you know tactics that you know uh aggressive tactics in their interview with her and that's why she answered which we'll get into but i want to get to darby on cindy collins question here uh darby michelle uh traconis knew jennifer farber Dulos was missing and you're riding around with the main subject meeting photos Dulos throwing away bags how street dumb is she? Um, I'm curious uh what you think of this relationship. Obviously, they were living together, boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, she had to have some inkling. Uh, what do you think the dynamic, if you had a guess, between uh Doulos Dulos and Michelle Traconis was? Do you think that she mm. was helping him and that he had her under some sort of under his thumb, under some sort of you know, dominant position. Uh, Why was she helping if in fact she was?
3: Well, I mean, again, we don't really know how much she was helping, but yeah, when you're driving around there, there was so much publicity and it's everywhere. She knew the situation and um, I don't, I don't know if it's just disregard for Jennifer Dulos and she's just very enmeshed with FLOTUS or if it it could be a sort of scary uh, she's a victim too in a abusive relationship with FLOTUS but to either extent um, she didn't step out I mean she she knew to who knows to what degree she knew but she knew it wasn't right she knew there was something up and she didn't go, you know, she didn't try and turn against him or anything like that. So uh, I would say she really was enamored with him and, you know, must think at some level they could have gotten away with it because she didn't turn.
1: Yeah. And Darby, I want to come right back to you. So uh just taking a half step back in this case, two of, so there's a six panel jury, which is unusual as opposed to 12. And Two of the five alternates uh, were thrown out, one for coming up or announcing that there was some sort of gone girl theory referring to the Affleck movie. The other one uh, was praising the state. But the bigger question here, Darby, in the day and age that we live with, and I know you see this in your practice where everyone is on their uh, tablets all day long. Is it possible to have a jury um, that is truly impartial or is that impossible now?
3: I mean, the fact that it's in Connecticut and right here in Stanford, it's literally down the road. Um, I think it's hard to have a jury that is impartial in this case um, because it's just been all over the press. I mean, there's even it's been several years. There's state laws. Jennifer's law has been passed. So I think it's um, it's highly questionable to think it's they, they don't have some awareness of what's gone on. But that's not the same as as partial. I mean, you
2: you have to know, and I think everybody deserves to know that the question of impartiality doesn't mean you live under a rock with a bunch of idiots and you don't pay attention to the news. I mean, who the hell wants that kind of juror? That just means you're a slug. So it's okay that people know about the case. The thing of partial the thing with impartiality is that you then have to answer the question and I'm sure every juror did, considering what you know. Can you be fair? And then, if the answer is uh, yes, you get seated. It's a really serious promise to make, and sometimes people err too much in the other direction. I sat on a jury a couple of years ago. It was a domestic violence case, and I can't even believe I was picked, except that the the defendant was a woman, so both sides liked me because the defendant how could you How
1: could you be picked for a domestic violence case when you're a <laughs> world expert? The defendant
2: was a woman, so they both thought I would be good for them.
1: Wow!
2: Okay. People thought I had the right uh, bias. They all—they all knew me, but they picked me, and uh, I was so worried about being biased that I think I was overcompensating. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that I—I I don't mean that I came up with the wrong uh, result. I voted not guilty, and everybody agreed, and we were—we had like a three-minute discussion. It was clearly a not guilty for all of us. But what I'm saying is, I was—and I know the system very well. I was nervous about my obligation and I really didn't want to be partial. So I was so mindful that if anything, I was over careful about not finding somebody guilty. And I'm not sure that's fair to prosecutors. But I do think that juries, um, especially in cases like this, where they know the whole world is watching, or lots of people anyway are watching, uh, they don't want to get it wrong. And they don't want to be biased. Nobody wants to be called unfair or biased. I mean, it's just a painful label to feel that you deserve that in a, in a, when you're doing your civic duty on behalf of American democracy and apple pie and so forth. I think most jurors, there are, you know, there are jurors that are just corrupt. They'll vote whatever way the dollar blows. But in a case like this, I think um, there was some good vetting to make sure that even though they all know a lot about the case, that they will judge the case only on the evidence and they will be fair and impartial
1: uh bobby from annie k michelle seemed to have selective confusion this is a big part of the trial now with interviews coming in uh, there's a six-hour interview that they started to play uh so she seemed to have selective confusion and melodramatic surprise during the interview she comes across as less plausible your thoughts bobby you're you know this is your wheelhouse uh the interview with the suspect um i don't know if you got a chance to see any of it but uh, wondering what your thoughts are
0: yeah, I I didn't see the whole thing but I did see some of it. Yeah, there's a lot of uh confusing statements. There's a lot of uh statements that aren't adding up, to, adding up. Uh things aren't smelling right. Uh timelines aren't working out. Um a lot of correcting and, you know, trying to figure it out and get it straight. Um, you know, whether that's part of uh I mean that that's not uh, uh surprising, uh to be quite honest. It's it's part of the Uh, the shtick, if you will, at times of people being interviewed who may have some involvement in something. Um, Yeah. I mean, if she was to come across and it was hitting the same comments all the time, keeping it all straight, she'd have a little bit more credibility in her comments. But when the comments start bopping all over the place, uh, it's easy to kind of pick out uh, what's not gelling or what's not jiving. And the interrogator or the investigator or the interviewer, whichever they're doing at the time, is going to take that path and run with it Uh, depending upon what is not adding up on that particular statement.
1: And uh, that's where the state is heading right now. Just a quick programming note, tomorrow, Friday, fun day, uh, we always have a good time with Phil and Scott, 12.30 p.m. Eastern. We're going to look at that crazy case out of Kansas City, Missouri, where those three Chiefs fans, uh, football fans, were found frozen to death in a friend's backyard. They're trying to figure out what happened there. 17, it's always something in the United States of America. Uh 1776 daughter for Darby. The children's nanny at the time of their mother's death is still their nanny. How might that factor into their emotional well-being? Darby, I assume, and she took the stand. I assume this is sort of a good thing because it is you know, someone they're familiar with uh, their, you know, their life been upended, but at least they get to keep my kids, you know, love the babysitter. Um, Is this a positive for them?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, again, one more factor that goes towards the fact that we do have some relative belief they can be healthy. Um, Kids, especially as young as they were, they were between eight and 13. um, Sort of our standard is what do kids need? And it's the notion that they're safe, and that they're loved. The safety piece was in question here. Um, now that they were in Brooklyn and you know they, they don't have their data around, that is kind of taken care of, but that they do know they're loved. They're surrounded by people. The more stability we can keep, the wider the community that can be there for them, it, it leads towards the notion that they will be healthier. It's a very positive piece.
1: If this is true, from Brianna, a friend of the show, to another, Dwayne Harris, happy birthday. Dwayne, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. There you go. Uh, Awesome. And uh, maybe that's why he's gifting today, but you got to stop, Dwayne. It's making me uncomfortable. Uh, Becky Barnes here. Uh, Bobby, she seemed rehearsed in her interview. That's something that you guys, I assume, can pick up on if someone knows too many answers uh, and kind of has an answer for every question thrown their way,
0: right? Right. You're picking up a vibe on who you're interviewing or interrogating and, and, you know, kind of watching a lot of different things about them, their body language, their movements, their uh, where they're looking, how they're coming across with their verbal answers. Are they they believable? Are they all over the board? Are they fidgety? Um, A lot of different things are taking place here to try to uh, see what the person is trying to say, how they're trying to say it. Are they trying to deviate from your questions? Are they not answering your specific questions? Again, are they taking it in a different direction? So, uh, you know, I've seen some wonderful examples of interrogators and investigators and interviewers who are just phenomenal at what they do and are able to uh, pick up when something's not spelling right again and take it in the direction that it needs to go to get the answers that we need to get to make sure the case is moving in the right direction.
1: By the way, everyone's saying what an amazing panel. It's not the best guess in true crime. It's not just a tagline. It is our reality here. Nancy B became a YouTube member. Thank you very much. So I probably should have done this right off the top. But uh, so police believe that Fotis Doulos, of course, the estranged husband, killed Jennifer Farber Doulos in the garage of her home in New Canaan back in May 2019. Michelle Traconis has been charged with conspiracy to commit murder tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution of course the most significant charge there is conspiracy to commit murder and then she's accused of helping photos create this alibi which is what wendy was talking about as well as cleaning up the pickup truck darby today in court and i think we have a photo michelle traconis broke down she started to cry about these police interviews here's the photo to prove it uh what does that do for a trial what does that do to jurors
3: Well, um, I think the jurors could be, I mean, they a little bit empathetic, right? Anytime we see someone crying, Mm -hmm. it it gives you a moment to pause. But um, again, I do think that the overarching piece is somehow, who knows exactly what she knew, but she knew that it wasn't right. She knew there was something going on. So I you know, the stress of the case, the amount of years it's gone on, all of that could lead to it. I think they'll, people feel badly, but I don't think it's going to really sway them like in, you know, Oh, poor thing. She shouldn't be crying if she weren't guilty. I I don't think it'll go that far.
2: Yeah. And they'll notice that she wasn't crying in the interview, but she's crying because her ass is on the line. I think, I think again, it cuts both ways. And it's one of these things that, um, it's too it's too risky because if a jury thinks she's putting it on they're going to vote against her with a vengeance that's the downside of doing these dramatic things i've had defendants in my trials um, do unbelievably performative things like, you know, try to act like they have mental problems when everyone knows they don't. Or I've had a couple of them show up in wheelchairs. And then I did a, a you know, like a, um, a surveillance operation and found them that later that same day walking <laughs> around. It's, um, it's so common that defendants uh, do stuff like this. And it's actually common that their lawyers encourage them to do things like this because they're trying to get the jury to identify with their client if the jury can identify with michelle tucronis they're more inclined to hear what she has to say it gets the evidence is stickier the evidence on her side is stickier in terms of their internal narrative and if it's a stickier experience for them to hear stuff that favors her uh then that, then that's going to be good for her in terms of them being inclined to find her not guilty But but it's really hard to get jurors to identify with somebody like Traconis because she doesn't have the sympathy factors and she's up against or the feeling is she's, you know, in terms of the theater of this court case, she's up against this incredibly beautiful, loving mother of five, you know. Who was saintly, and uh, they're not going to—they can't help but compare them, and it's going to be the, you know, Glinda and the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. She just doesn't have yeah. that um, image, and I—and I don't mean that like she's not a pretty woman, because I don't mean to be judgmental in that way. I mean she's not coming across as warm. She's not mm. coming across as compassionate, and when the jury sees that she was a little too cute in her interview. Again, they're going to pull back and say, my God, if I were her and they call, police called me to test, you know, to give a statement, I would have been sobbing. I would have been saying, take my blood, take my everything. I, you know, instead she lawyered up and if her best argument is, well, you know, I had mental problems and I was uh, emotionally attracted to this monster it's a little late to come up with that defense because it's been five years or however long it's been. And I think that she could have done that in the beginning and it probably would have served her and she probably wouldn't do any prison time, but that would have meant from day one saying to FOTUS, listen, I'm, I'm out of this. You know, I, I, I thought you were, a victim. And I, and I can sort of see this as, as something that might have happened to her where a guy who's charismatic says to an, a woman like this, Oh, my wife is such a bitch. She's taking the kids. She's totally exploiting me. She's trying to get, you know, ruin my life, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if she buys into that and, and feels like he's being bullied by Jennifer, her wealthy family, et cetera. I can see her latching onto him in the same way that some women fall in love with guys in prison. Oh, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. If she's a saver type and a lot of women in abusive relationships are, um, then she made the decision she did. You know, she, she made her bed. She's got to lie in it. And even if she feels differently now, it's too late. So I don't see the jury as, as being able to feel for her. That doesn't mean that the jury is, you Know a bunch of uh, ice cubes, it means, and it doesn't mean that they've already made up their minds, it means that she's done nothing in this case to create an air of sympathy around her. Nothing,
1: uh, by the way, good time to uh, shout out the COE who's putting all these elements in the show. She's also helming our new channel, which is this uh, Best Trials in True Crime. Check it out, subscribe, please. And uh Space Coast on the West Coast, hand- handling all the technical issues. issues. Steve Cohen, who gets us these amazing guests. And, of course, our amazing mods, whose names I never like to say, because I know I'm going to forget one. Although I'm staring at three of them in the chat. Shaq Oatmeal, the best name. I am not T-Pain. Frankie Figs, Copper Horse. And who's – I'm forgetting the fifth one. The COE will tell me. Um, Darby to you from Paper Chaser. I always say best guess, better community. And this is why – look at this question. This is really interesting to me. Isn't there a degree of some element, Darby, of wanting to convict someone after the obvious perpetrator, Fotis Doulos, is out of the picture? He unalived himself. Would we even be watching Gen X Granny? Would we even be watching this trial if Fotis was still alive and he was convicted? Would there be this level of interest, Darby?
3: I mean, that's hard to say. I don't. I don't think... I think there would be just as much interest. It would, uh, honestly, I think this is not really professional. This is more of a personal, like there's people that think this is fascinating. Like let's see what's happening in this case. Um, I don't, I don't think it would be um, if he were convicted, we'd say, okay, and how did she participate? Like this is, people love to find these things out. It's like sort of reality TV. So I I don't, I don't know that that, is necessarily true, but that's, I mean, maybe Wendy, you can speak to that from a legal perspective, but I think this is more sort of, you know, what people like to see, not really a like Yeah, well, in terms of the, the you know, the
2: public yeah. paying attention, right. um, they definitely want their pound of flesh. And it's yeah. it's kind of a human instinct, if you ask me, when someone is killed uh and the perpetrator is no longer around we do want someone to pay and it isn't always possible so but but that's a public perception thing I, if i'm not mistaken she was charged before he committed suicide as yes. was her, her as was uh his lawyer friend there mawini so yeah. I don't think this is one of those cases. If she had been charged after he committed suicide, the defense might be able to make some hay with that by saying to the jury, isn't it convenient that they didn't even charge her until after he died? Because there is a sense, I think, that if you didn't feel strongly about charging her until you lost the primary uh, uh, criminal, there's a possibility the jury might say, yeah, that's just not right. There's something there's something off. But because they didn't do that and because they did have a hierarchical approach to this case where they wanted the most bad guy to be prosecuted first, the second most bad guy, her to be prosecuted second, and I think the, the lawyer had a much less significant role, an important one, and I think it'll you know it'll be interesting to see. but prosecutors want to win their strongest case first and they want to win the primary criminals case first and that's what they did. And there's nothing unusual about that. I do think her lawyers will try to make some hay about it because they can you know, they'll say to the jury in closing argument, isn't it interesting that they went hog wild after her only when the real bad guy uh, killed himself? And, you know, is that what you want your government to do? And isn't that terrible fascism, blah, 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 And the prosecution has to respond, you know, with, with the facts, which is, we always knew she had a role, not as important role as Bota Dulos, but a role worth prosecuting. And it's not It's no skin off our nose uh, that that he's dead in terms of our willingness to prosecute her. We were going to do it anyway. Win or lose against him. We were going to do it anyway. So I think it'll be put to bed pretty quickly. But um, the juries can think a little bit about that. And I think they're going to speculate a lot about exactly what everybody wonders when it comes to looking at Traconis in court and wondering what she's been doing for the past several years What were you thinking? You know, what the hell is wrong with you that you're hanging with a guy like that and you get involved in a murder? What are you thinking? What was in it for you? Did he promise you money? What the hell are you thinking? The jury will want to understand what was motivating her and they may never get that answer. And that level of discomfort that juries have about not really understanding somebody, that can sometimes benefit the defense. It can, because it translates into a jury's lack of comfort, that they really get the story. And they might say, you know, I think there's more to the story. I think we're missing something. Somebody put pressure on her. Maybe her life was threatened. They might make stuff up to fill in the blanks because they haven't been told exactly how this woman came to be such a friggin' fool. So I don't know. I mean, we'll hear during the closing arguments what the defense wants to make of that piece of it, but it's potentially beneficial to the defense to harp on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, and uh, there were no opening statements, but there will be closing arguments, and it will be interesting to see if what Wendy says uh, is voiced by the state. You're not going to get this analysis in traditional media. You only get sound bites over there, but you're getting some really uh, in-depth analysis here from Wendy Murphy. A couple of Bobby McDonald questions now. Cindy Collins, shouldn't there be more blood evidence, Bobby, since 11 rolls of paper towels were used at the crime scene?
0: Sure. But, uh, like in a football game, we play defense when we're investigating things. The perpetrators of the crime here are the offensive side of the ball, and we have to play defense and try to find all of those things. So, this isn't an exact science putting uh, a criminal investigation together. We're going to have to just be able to work with what we're able to work with. Um, There's a lot of aspects to this, I'm sure, that we're never going to see or not know about because they just aren't available or were not available for us to uh, obtain. So, uh, You know, yeah, that that jumped out at me. The 11 rolls of uh, paper towels missing was a was a a smack in the forehead that that just, again, one of those portions of the case here that didn't smell right. When the nanny knew the night before she loaded up 12 brand new paper towels in the pantry. So, you know, that's one of those things that's not going to prove the case, but you're going to scratch your head and go, hmm, uh, that's very, 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 very interesting. Uh,
1: Another one for you from the uh, Philadelphia shoulder surgeon. Bobby, how do you direct an investigation once your main suspect has unalived himself, i.e. fotostulos How do you change tactics when you've lo- lost one co-conspirator? Is there a tactic you take?
0: Well, I, I I wouldn't say you change tactics. I think that you have to press ahead. And again, I'm saying the same things over and over again here tonight. You have to be able to work with what you have to work with. um You've got to be able to try to put those timelines together. you got to try to be able to take the information about the deceased person and and take that uh, from when we were able to get it prior to his dying or taking his life, and then take those pieces of the puzzle and put them into uh, on her side of the house to, again, try to get the totality of the circumstances here to see what happens. So this is not an easy task. It's not an easy task for any criminal investigation, uh, but you've got to dot your I's, cross your T's, and make sure you're getting everything that's available to you uh, making sure it's it's uh, uh, seized properly and put into proper evidence and stored properly. As, as Wendy knows, you've got to get all of that stuff uh, together and make sure that it's all squared away. And you can only work with what you've got to work with. Sometimes we hit a stone wall and things aren't going to go any farther in a certain direction. But you have to keep pressing until you have that element of not having anything left in your mind to find.
2: And you uh, know what is- I... Yeah. Can I that, say
0: something re- very quickly? That's just a
1: video. Photos dumping stuff out. Go yeah, ahead. one
2: of the things I like tactically about the fact that Photos um, isn't around is because it sort of prevents what what I call the cross finger pointing problem. Any prosecutor and cops know this. If you have only two suspects and they stick together like glue, and they you know their lawyers work together, and then the case comes forward, uh, it is incredibly hard to prove exactly which one did what, because they each serve as as each other's built-in reasonable doubt. So you can go after Fotis, and he's going to point the finger at Michelle with her permission. So he walks. Then you go after Michelle, and she points the finger at him, and he's okay with that. And he lets himself be her reasonable doubt, and they both walk. It's like that old saying, When you have lots of criminals involved in one situation, nobody talks, everybody walks. The cross-finger-pointing problem where two people get to say the other one did it is so frustrating for prosecutors and law enforcement. And we don't have that in this case because Fotis is dead. So that, to me, is helpful for this case.
1: Mm. Uh, Back to Darby here. Lucy uh, A. Forever Joel, the moment she said Jennifer was on medication and unstable and she was going to have to deal with her like that the rest of her life, that was the boom uh, moment for me or minute for me. And then um, M. Bucky, since Fotus can't be found guilty, the residents of Connecticut Darby are going to hold Michelle Traconis responsible for the death of a mom of five and find her guilty. Psychologically speaking, and that is your world, do you think that the jurors feel like, Someone has to be held responsible. He's no longer with us. Therefore, uh, it will be Michelle Traconis.
3: Well, um, I don't think that that's their job. They're not they're not supposed to be their job isn't to find someone guilty or someone, they're supposed to weigh the evidence. So I don't know. Um, the residents of Guilty or of Connecticut certainly would like to see someone pay for this tragic case, but legally i don't think that weighs in on what the jurors are supposed to be doing like it can't so, be an emotional thing so um yeah, right you know i think everybody is pretty curious it's an awfully sad situation and people would like to you know see someone pay especially since he committed suicide which seems like kind of a uh, you know
1: um darby geez. the pss here wants you to speak to how chillingly calm Fotis looks on all these videos. Uh, He presumably has just murdered someone. Look at him. He's just tossed. How are, how are murders able to do this Darby?
3: Well, I think that's, I mean, he's a psychopath. I mean, he really has depraved indifference to other people. He's not worried about them. Um, He doesn't really care what other people think. And to a certain extent you see sort of that mindset feels they're right. Like, she deserved this. She tried to take my kids and you know what? I'm going to show her. So that's where we see he's very calm and calculated. Um, it, It just goes with the, pathology of his uh, mindset for someone to be able to brutally murder the mother of their five children like that. He also, he also knows he's on video and he's doing a bit of a performance. Like I better
2: not look anxious because I'm just throwing away yesterday's trash. It looks like he's just cleaning the back of his truck. Exactly. But, but it, but he knows he's on video. He's not an idiot. And you have to, you have to perform for the cameras because you're always playing a chess game with police. Yeah. Will they maybe find these videos? If so, you know, and I, and I have no doubt he probably checked out the schedule of the pickup of those bins before he decided which day he was going to kill her to make sure they'd get picked up that day and be in some far off, not just landfill, but perhaps one that is an incinerator. Uh, because killers think about stuff like that. They don't want their stuff to go to a landfill. That's findable. They want it to go it to an incinerator. Out.
1: Uh, Quick, quick programming note. By the way, I've been listening. Hello, everyone. We are available on all audio platforms. If you can give us five stars, you have no idea how far that goes in helping STS. So I'd appreciate uh, that greatly. Uh, Monday and Tuesday and possibly Wednesday, Alec Murdoch, the story that never stops. He's back in court. Will he get a new murder trial? We're going to cover that on Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, we pivot to Scott Peterson, a case that uh, Wendy knows all too well. We did it last night. Is he going to get a new trial? Could he be exonerated? Uh, Wendy, I know, has some choice words for the LA Innocence Project. We're going to discuss that on Wednesday with Mark Garagos, uh, who we're trying to line up. He has been a best guest before. And then Thursday, we pivot pivot back to Dan Markell, Daniel Rashbaum, Don Adelson, all of that with uh, Dave Ehrenberg and guests and one of Dar- Dan Markell's uh, former students. So that is a look ahead at next week. Uh, meanwhile, Bobby McDonald, so today, really, uh this police testimony is uh getting underway. Jury is now the jury is now set to see hours of police interviews. Uh the lead investigator is a guy named John uh Kimball, who at the time was uh state police for the Western District Major Crimes Unit. Uh the, the interview today, I think, is uh like six uh hours worth of uh video macro question to you when you're going in for your first interview, because she starts to kind of change your story up. What are you trying to elicit
0: from Michelle Traconis in that first interview? Well, the first thing you're trying to do is trying to establish a rapport. You're trying to uh, get a get a a trust or a connection, if you will, with the person that you're interviewing or interrogating. And that's done. You see in the beginning of the tapes here, they talk very innocuously about the temperature in the room. And if you need to take a break, we can take a break. And there's some bottles of water on the table. That's just setting the stage. And then you're going to just start very. Uh, very softly, very slowly, bringing in different aspects of why we're here, what we want to talk about, what we want to try to get to. You want to be listening to make sure that what she's saying is matching up with what you hopefully already know from your investigation. So the investigators are going to have, hopefully, the answers to many of the questions that that are going to be posed to her. And when she doesn't come back with those proper responses, or at least a response that's close to what they think they know, They're gonna continue to harp on that particular topic or continue to press. They're gonna continue to uh, watch her body language. They're gonna continue to move around the room. You can see that she's placed in the corner of the room uh, with uh, her attorney at that time, Andy Bowman with her. Um, and, And the idea is again, to get her talking, to get her to put on the table, her side of the story, the information that she's got, what she knows, how she knows it. Uh, Is she gonna be willing to cooperate with the situation? And then as that time goes on, you're going to zero in on aspects of that. You're gonna zero in on the aspects of the case that are correct in what she's saying that you already know, and you're gonna zero in on aspects of the case that are not correct as far as what you know. So it's a game, it's a process. Um, It's very important, it's a serious situation. But it's an opportunity to get the discussion rolling and it's an opportunity to figure out what's going on here, how it went on and how we need to proceed with the case. So um, it's a process. Uh, it needs to keep moving on. And, uh, you know, the investigators here, the interviewers did a pretty good job of, of, <laughs> of keeping the uh, of keeping the ball rolling um, uh, to get to uh, the, the resolution or the area that they wanted to get to with respect to that particular interview.
1: And I would offer Wendy the mucinex, but uh, we ordered some for the kids, and Ethel, my dog, <laughs> ate it, drank it all, and we had a call. I didn't even know. There was poison control for the ASPCA. I just got over it,
0: so I know how you feel, Wendy. Yeah, it's and I'm going.
2: terrible. Go- I had 103 fever all day today, but I took a huge dose of NyQuil before I came on the mm-hmm. show because I couldn't possibly miss your show. But uh, I'm oh, sorry. Thank I'm, you, Wendy. I'm constantly on mute because my lungs are not going to survive
1: um i am in the same boat i took nyquil last night and to be honest i can't wait to take it tonight because i had some weird dreams last night and i got to (laughs) pick up on those um wesley john holmes an aussie living in tokyo friend of the show um let's play a bit of sound here this is one of the later interviews and um here one of the investigators uh bobby ends up telling michelle traconis that she's one of the most hated women in america let's watch if I were
0: to tell you that I have evidence that he was not in the house at that time? More. you see what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want to be over dramatic. I don't want to... Okay. Think. This is not listening to me. This is not any kind of threat. I just want you to understand. You have a daughter who's 12 years old. Have you have a mother. How old is your mom? Sixty. Okay. All right. You want to see that, right? You don't want to go to prison. You
1: don't want to get arrested on Okay. I'm going to stop it right there. So uh, Darby, I'm curious, what do you think? By the way, uh, she has earbuds in this whole trial because, you know, allegedly she doesn't understand English. It seems like she understands English pretty well here. Um, But Darby, what do you make, you know, of her body language, her demeanor up to this point? She's about to be told by the bald guy in the foreground that she's one of the most hated women in America. But up to this point, what do you make of it?
3: I don't think she really cares. Um, she, her body language is very dismissive. It's kind of like, okay, come on, what else do you have? I got to get on with this. Um, she's not terribly bothered by the notion that she's got a young daughter or, I mean, she doesn't even know the age of her mother. That's not the point. The point is, aren't you human? And uh, she's not really, there's some depraved indifference there too. It's sort of like, okay, what, what, what else do you have? Let's move on. So uh, her body language is very dismissive.
2: I think Uh, think to be fair to her, uh, she's got a lawyer, and the lawyer would have told her, "This is how you have to behave." You know, so you can't so much uh, characterize her as having made the decision to appear the way she's appearing. I think that lawyer probably said to her, "Show no emotion, none, zero. Have no affect, one way or the other. It'll be used against you, and there's nothing you can do about that. So just show nothing." And and you know, I also think because she had time to prepare. In terms of, you know, working with her lawyer before this interview, um, he told her what to expect from the investigators, because I'm sure it's a lawyer who knows how this works. By the way, Wendy,
1: I don't think it was. I think this was a real estate attorney that she just grabbed on the go. And I don't think this guy knew his, you know, what from his elbow. No, no. are, Are you talking
0: about the attorney that's right here? Yeah, is this, yeah. Who is this guy? No, no. This is this is one. Of, this is Andy Bowman. I've known Andy for 35 years. Oh, Andy, he,
1: OK. Someone said he was a real estate attorney.
0: No, no, no. Andy is a phenomenal uh, criminal attorney in, the, okay. in and around the state of Connecticut. And quite frankly, would be okay. one of the guys that I would call if I ever got in trouble.
1: Wow. There you go. It seems like he didn't. He didn't. Um, and at the very end, though, he just kind of walks out, which is interesting. He Kind of left her in there. Did anyone comment on that, Bobby?
0: Not sure, but again, Andy is a straight shooter. Uh, Andy knows his way around the Connecticut courts, in my opinion. Um, And uh, I I would think that she was, uh, again, we only see portions of this represented very well in this portion of the investigation. And and And, and Darby, this question.
3: I do think, yes, the attorneys tell you what to do. In any of these situations, such a heavily loaded thing, you don't, it's pretty hard. To do exactly what they say and show a lot of indifference, I mean you 've got to be pretty comfortable with where you are to act that way. Yes,
2: but well, what i 'm saying ahead, is she
3: would have, she would have spent a
2: lot of time with him and with fotus 's lawyers talking about what the evidence was, what they knew the evidence was, how to deal with it, what to say, what to expect, how not to get caught in certain traps. Like one of the things investigators do, it's just, it's, it's important to do, is they'll ask the question, move ahead, come back to the same question, ask it slightly differently, move, it, move ahead, come back to that same question. Because it's really hard to lie well. And if you lie uh, about anything and they ask you, that question over and over you're not going to get your answer right except if you have a really good lawyer who prepares you that that's what's going to happen so here's what your job is and most of the time what a really good lawyer in a case like this will say is and and, and by the way this lawyer knows this is all on video it's going to be used in court so his performative stuff is important too the fact that he's not objecting or being angry he's trying to portray that his client is innocent and he that's why he's not objecting He's got nothing to hide. She's got nothing to hide, et cetera. So I think you just have to put it in context of understanding this is tactical. This is tactical. It's not like, you know, you or I get called in to talk to police and, you know, we have a, we have a strong urge to just say everything we know. This is really, you know, criminal defense work at its finest in the sense that you want to look like you're cooperating without giving the police any evidence whatsoever to use against you. And and from what I've read, and I could be wrong, although she did make statements that were inconsistent, which is a problem, everybody does make inconsistent statements. Um, there wasn't anything earth shattering in what she said in the interviews in terms of the case
3: against her.
1: Uh, From MCR to Darby, is she protecting herself with her arms in there like that, the way she's sitting, Darby?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a very closed-off posture, right? She's like, again, you know, sort of matter of fact. And yes, I would say she is.
1: Hmm. I don't know who Maria Traconis is, but she's uh, in the comments section. If this is family, uh, welcome to the chat. Um, If it's a made-up name, welcome to the chat anyway, but uh, let us know. Uh, disgusting comments. I uh, wonder if it is a family member. Interesting to see that. Uh, let's listen to the rest of this interview here, Bobby, and uh, get your take. All
3: right, so Chad, Michelle, have you been sure you, you, got, you got released from court, right? You, have you looked
1: at the news at all? Have you seen your face plastered? I mean, I'll be honest with you, you're probably one of the most
2: hated women in America right now. <laughs> And I'm not being mean. I know, I
1: know. So I me this me. is like the golden ticket. If you know where he could have done something and could have, where he frequents, if you could tip us off, maybe he said something in yeah. ingest something in passing that you can say, you know what? That rings a bell. Maybe. All right. Bobby, there it is. Uh, basically drawing attention there. Marie, I guess could be, um, uh maria traconis could be michelle's sister if this is actually her but uh welcome to the chat if you're here and i'd love to get your comments let us know and if you want to come on the show maria you've got an open invite surviving the survivor at gmail.com surviving the survivor at gmail.com we would love to have you as a guest uh people here are welcoming there you go remy nas hi maria uh we should hear all sides of every story so uh Yes, everyone is saying yes. Welcome to Maria. Again, Surviving the Survivor at Gmail. Drop us a note. Someone telling Wendy to feel better over here. Um, Bobby McDonald, she says, uh, do you know that you're the most hated uh, woman in America? Good tactic, bad tactic. Um, I showed it to some seasoned investigators who didn't love it. What say you?
0: Yeah, I think if we back up a little bit, I mean, you've got uh, three... Uh, detectives in there with their shirts and ties on you know strategically placed around the table you've got uh, the defendant and you've got uh, Andy Bowman sitting on the other side uh, one detective detective Kimball
1: let's play it out one more
0: time well, not, I'm mean. No, I'm not. so them, this is like the golden ticket if you know where he could have done something
1: and could have where he frequents if you could tip us off Maybe he said something, to ingest, something in chest, something. He seems a little, um, to me, Bobby, he seems a little unsure of himself. He's not, he's not very commanding here, but yeah, you know, someone I, I also. Think, rem-
0: yeah, I think go the ahead. tactic is that, you know, Detective Kimball at the top of the table there indicated that he was trying to appeal to her sense of decency uh, at his point of the questions. You're a, you know, you're a mom, you've got a mother, you've got family, uh, blah, 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 blah. And then there's a pause in the action and then the detective who uh, just made the last statement, he, he chimes in kind of the good cop, bad cop, if you will, within the, within the room here. So, you know, I, I don't know that that's uh, necessarily something that was helpful to the situation. Um, He felt that he needed to get that out. And that was something at the time that might've been helpful. Uh, I'm not, I'm not so sure I'm a huge fan of the tactic, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, it was thought that that by throwing out that uh, a little bit of a of a, 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 a shot comment at her uh, with respect to being hated was going to be helpful to the situation. It's a little bit and sexist. So-
2: too. It's a little bit sexist. Oh, you're a mother. You've got children. You know. Oh, don't you feel bad? I think at this point she's she's facing some serious time. She's even if she feels loving as a mother. She's not going to be swayed by that because her lawyer would have said they're going to try to manipulate you by using your daughters or your, you know, that that happens. I mean, this is old stuff that goes way back to I forget what year the Supreme Court first talked about this issue. When police say, you know, don't you want the family to be able to have a Christian burial? When you make speeches like that, that um, are highly emotional, you can get in trouble. Number one, as a cop, I mean, you're allowed to lie but you have to be a little bit careful. And my view is it's just kind of insulting. I think in a case like this where you know she knows stuff and you think she probably wasn't a major participant, you make a deal with her. You offer her something, especially after he died. But I, I suspect she said no to a deal early on. They probably offered her something. She probably said no. And then when he, when Fotis died, she went crawling back for the deal And they said, go pound sand. We don't want to give you a deal anymore. You're now uh, our number one defendant. And that's a problem. You know, it's a problem for a a case like this where they may have, in the beginning, felt like she didn't deserve, you know, the whole power of of the law enforcement uh, resources thrown thrown at her. But because she didn't cooperate early, I think she's kind of stuck with what she did. I think that's that's an an excellent point. point it might've been the right strategy at the time, you know, and, and you can't criticize her because she didn't know he was going to kill himself, right. but she's stuck now.
1: Wendy, what about this? Is it too late uh, in the, in the game right now for some sort of plea bargain uh for information about Jennifer's whereabouts? And I think that that was one of the talking points before the trial. Maybe she would give up the location. Can they still do that? What, what kind of yeah. plea deal would there be?
2: Yeah. And uh I think that's uh, probably um, the most, important question in terms of how we ended up having a trial in this case, because she probably thought that they would come to her and say, just tell us where the body is and we'll make a deal. But you remember the family on the virtual eve of trial, in this case, the family, uh, Jennifer's family issued a statement. And I was reading through the lines in it. I don't know if you have it where you can pop it up on the screen, Joel, but the uh, statement said something very explicit about, uh, you know, we don't, we're not interested in uh, that. And I, I forget how they said it, but it was, it implied to me.
1: But that, that just reminded people, me, COE, do we have a, I think we have a statement from the family that I don't see COE, but we'll get that up. Well, go ahead, yeah, Eddie. but
2: whatever it said, it implied to me that she had gone to the prosecution and said, I'll tell you where the body is if you drop the charges and the prosecutor went to the family and the family said, screw her. Absolutely not. It's too late, but we might've been okay with that. You know, four years ago, I just think um, it's too late for her even to get that kind of deal. Probably because number one, the family's gotten used to Jennifer being gone. They might've really wanted the body four years ago and they don't want it so much anymore. They may not have religious feelings, about you know getting the body uh in the way that somebody might have 50 years ago and then i think maybe even more importantly is uh they want they want justice from someone and they're just not willing to give it up they might have been had FOTUS been prosecuted but at this point they know the court has already declared jennifer dead what do they get out of it and it may be that the body is not um recoverable that's another thing it may not be buried it might be incinerated in which case she can't offer it up anyway
1: yeah uh by the way darby had to bounce off i think so uh shout out to darby who's a therapist and uh very close to the new canaan area and uh was in the same uh circles uh as jennifer farber Dulos. um bobby do you think she knows where the body is point blank do you
0: boy that's a tough one Um... um Probably, I think she. I think she point does. toss. You do. I think. I think she does. I, I. I. It wouldn't surprise me if she didn't, but I do think she does.
1: Here's a quick soundbite from Michelle Traconis. I'm not exactly sure what this is, so let's watch it together. The to we could fill us in if. Uh, it's quick, from what I understand. Are
3: we go around, or are we turn around. Like, why are we here?
1: So this is obviously a police interview. Uh, you see the date there, June 27th. Uh, she's killed at the end of May. Um, this is after the arrest, I guess. And uh, she, they're asking uh, what she's doing with Fotis Dulos, just very quickly.
4: Somehow we go around, or we turn around, You're like, why are we here?
1: So she's saying, why are we here? Uh, Bobby, is that going to help her? Uh, seems like she's in a bit of uh unknown territory as to why she's with Fotis and what he's up to at that point.
0: Well, I mean, there's really not a whole lot to that statement. I think uh, if there's more context to what the question was specifically or where they were leading the investigation or the uh, interrogation or uh, interview at that point, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know that that statement helps her a whole lot, to be quite honest with you. But Again, I'll defer to my friend and colleague Wendy on what she thinks, but I I don't think there's a whole lot right there that really uh, tilts something for me.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree, Bobby. I think it's um, it's neither here nor there. The you know the fact that she was willing to say something to police like that suggests to me that she got legal advice and she knew it was good to say. Things like, and I told him, "What are we doing? What are we doing?" You know, because that s- helps to suggest that she didn't know what was going on. It's a it's a tough call for me because I, I I keep thinking, and really, Bobby might know better. If you're a killer and you want someone to help you, would it be better or worse for you if they knew what you were doing? Because if they turn on you and they know nothing, Frankly. there's not there's not a lot they can do to cook your case against you. Right. But on the other hand, uh, you might want to tell them a lot because then if you do get in trouble, uh, you want them to have the same strong desire not to help law enforcement. Right. right. You don't want yeah. you want them not to go to law enforcement because that's your best position is that neither of you goes to law enforcement. So in a selfish sense, I would think he would want her to know. And, you know, uh it, 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 there's still so much more evidence to come. But one of the issues is where, where did the body go after he killed her? Which car was it in? You know, we've read reports about um, several cars being involved and seats being removed and replaced. And her car was found in a park. But that means somehow her car got to the park and, and her body somehow got out of her car and into some other car. Somebody had to drive that car. You know, Fotis had to drive her from the house to the park, I suppose, right? Somebody had to meet him at the park. It, is it plausible that when he got to the park, let's assume Michelle was involved in, in doing the pickup and transfer, if you will, is it possible that she wouldn't know why she was there? Uh, it's it's one of the things we still need to hear more evidence to talk you know, sensibly about.
0: And, and because- Wendy, these are all the questions. You're, you're spot on. And these are all the questions that behind the scenes investigators are asking, are chalk talking over around the coffee pot when we come into work in the morning, when somebody woke up at 3 a.m. and thought exactly what Wendy just said. This isn't adding up. So we have to go out and try to figure out why those things got to where they got to, who got them there, how were they involved in all this stuff. And it just kind of takes on a life of its own. And Sometimes. And if it wasn't
2: Michelle, if it wasn't Michelle who met him at the park, who, who was it? it? Is there somebody yeah. else involved? I mean, this is really important stuff that to me is far more important than her fingerprints on the on the garbage bag because it's the immediate aftermath of the crime. And we don't know yet what the yeah, police th- know about her car right. or and the this car. is
1: uh... This is an interesting video here. I, I, I paused it, obviously, but you can see Fotis with his cap on, uh, and he is uh, walking to the garbage, but you can see the passenger side uh, of the truck is open, and someone that appears, and obviously it's hard to tell, but it could be Michelle Traconis.
0: Well, if we, that is her, yeah, and they're hitting 25 different garbage cans in uh-huh. Albany Avenue or, or wherever that was, if she's asking that question you would think she would be expecting some type of an answer. Mm
4: -hmm. And if
0: we put together some of those other things we know, whether it's the alibi notes or whatever, there just seems to be some things here that she should either have been asking questions about and or been seeking answers about to satisfy her own curiosity.
1: Very, very good point. Um, Obviously you'd want to know what is going on. Um, Wendy uh, quickly here is FOTUS's attorney. This is a whole other part of the story. Kent Mawinney. Uh, one-time Fotis's attorney, who apparently helped with the alibi notes. Is he going to testify, do you think, against Michelle Traconis?
2: Oh, such a good question. Um, I, I don't think so. They, there would have to already have been a deal in place for that decision to be made, and I don't think he has a deal. And I don't think cops want to give him a deal. I don't think prosecutors want to give him a deal. Um, they, their case against him is a little bit different and it's not they, they don't think that he was involved in getting rid of the body or planning the killing or whatever they think he was involved in a um an after the fact sort of you know how can I, I i think i think um their their focus on him is that he gave them advice about where they could bury the body and you know there's some evidence of a grave being dug and he knew about it and all this stuff and he certainly um lied i mean they those things are going to come out but how that helps the prosecution in this case i don't see it i don't see anything and i could be wrong because i don't know a lot about the evidence except what i've read in terms of mawini <clears throat> nothing i've read suggests that he has knowledge about her role and even if he did um he probably wouldn't have shared it with police because he would have had this, you know, ethical dilemma about um, reporting anything that might have hurt his client. So it's an interesting case because lawyers don't typically get prosecuted at all, even when they do engage in cover-up activity. And, you know, when they uh, get a call from a guy who's committed a murder and 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 their client says listen i killed someone and i need to know how to get rid of the body most lawyers would say don't tell me anything i don't want to know i can't ethically help you goodbye click but there are some who would say this is what i think you should do go to this location dig a grave you know blah 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 so un- unfortunately we don't know enough yet but from what we do know the evidence against Michelle Draconis does not seem to overlap in a meaningful way with the evidence against Mawinney. So I don't see them calling him um, at, in this case to help them prove the charges against her.
1: Uh, Here is the family statement, family and friend statement from Jennifer Farber Dulos. For Jennifer's family and loved ones, seeing the physical evidence on Tuesday was brutal but also crucial Witnessing Jennifer's blood-soaked clothing, knowing that was the shirt, the bra she wore on the last day of her life, made us imagine again what she must have endured on May 24th, 2019. We hope that seeing this evidence in three dimensions can put an end to any suggestion that Jennifer is missing. She died a tragic death, and her loss is felt beyond what words can express And a judge did declare her dead, by the way, just in October of this past year. And, Bobby, this is the evidence. Um, We talked about this off the top. But when jurors see this, um, it's hard not to get emotional, correct?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's as the statement just said. That's basically what she was wearing the last time that she was alive. And that kind of brings a connection back to May of 2019, uh, for the family. And, uh, look, it's an important part of the, it's an important part of the case. And it's, it's a, a tragic viewing of, uh, the actual things that she was wearing at the time that she was murdered. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very sad situation. It brings a little personalization, uh, into that courtroom again, that, that she was wearing those clothes when she died. It's yeah, also, and, and-
2: so, it's so weird to me that, that he chose to use, you know, a, a a bat or a, or a knife or whatever that caused so much bleeding uh, you got to be a dumbass murderer to to want to splurt blood all over the place strang I just I don't want to teach anybody anything but you know strangulation doesn't leave a lot of dna all over the place so he had to be out of his mind with rage that's where you get these super bloody situations um and and it's um you know it's it's confusing to me because he clearly planned it. And if you're planning a murder, you want to plan it in a way that you can get away with it. So the worst thing he could do is make this a bloody crime scene. But he did. And, you know, I'm 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 perplexed by that. It just makes this is him- one of
0: those things, Wendy, that and I'm sure you I think you'll agree with this. Uh, all the planning in the world, there's always something that's forgotten or something that's not thought about or something that you would think they would have thought of. But he was obviously thinking of other things, potentially where to dispose, where those garbage receptacle containers were, and things like that. But you're spot on. Look at the amount of blood in this situation. Yeah, uh, or maybe maybe he did try strangulation and she well, fought back. Okay, that's that's a valid point too.
1: Mm. Um, so. At one point, uh, Detective, and we're going to wrap in a moment here, Detective Corey Clabby, uh, he holds up some of this evidence. There's a bloody pillow and he says, and I quote, that's blood. That's Jennifer's blood. Uh, the investigator tells her as Michelle quietly ex- exclaims, oh, my God. And then he says, Bobby, you need to start being honest with us about where Fotus was in the morning. How do you know as an investigator how to ratchet up, um, you know, the, the rhetoric in the interview room? How do you know how to pivot and when to pivot?
0: Well, I, I tell my students and we look at a lot of different interviews, uh, the Chris Watts case, we look at that quite a bit. And, and, and it, this is a gift. It's an art to be a good interrogator and a good, a good interviewer. It's, it's, it's knowing uh, what's coming. It's knowing what you need to work on. It's knowing what you're not hearing. Again, you've got to have done your homework ahead of time and know the answers to the questions through that good old fashioned police work investigation that we have to do. But then you've got to just zero that questioning into what you need to get to either get a confession or to get the right answers to what you're looking for. It is an art. Uh, It is a skill that not everybody has. We can all interview somebody. But if you've got that gift to zero in with your body language and your voice inflection and knowing when to take a coffee break and knowing when to switch up where somebody's sitting in a room, uh, if you've got the ability to handle those type of things and remain calm and... Uh, appeal to someone's sense of decency and come on, we know you're not a bad gal, but you know how this happened. Blah 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 blah, and zero in on that. That is an art, and if you can uh, if you can work that art and go into the criminal justice system, uh, you could go a long way in the investigations field. If you and I,
2: I'm sh- uh, I'm sort of shocked that she even submitted to an interview because just take the fifth and say nothing is the number one rule of thumb for any defense attorney, especially in such a serious case. So they must've offered her something and it might've been, uh, you know, conditional. Like we, we want to make sure you give us the truth. And if you give us the truth, we'll, we'll make a deal. And they were able to prove that she didn't give them the truth. And I've never seen a case where a defendant's statement uh, wasn't usable against him or her. It's, it's just, such a dumb thing to do if you're charged with a crime just don't talk to police i i I hate to say that because as a prosecutor i want to get all the evidence but you know the reality is you have a right to remain silent and why the hell wouldn't you so there's probably something more to the story in terms of why she agreed to sit for that second interview anyway and uh there might have been something on the table that just didn't work out and um you know i i i I just think she's not doing herself any favors in these interviews. It doesn't do any good for her. It may not be the smoking gun the prosecution needs, but it it does not help her. These interviews that I've seen thus far, the evidence I've heard about from the interviews either hurt her because she was inconsistent or, or they don't matter very much at all. But by no means did they help her.
1: Uh, Hey, Mona says my handsome husband came home and likes STS. So he's holding off on my true crime intervention for now. Hey, Mona, tell him to back off if he's got an issue. He's got to come through me. And then Bobby from I am not T-Pain, one of our mods. I'm not putting it up because I want to get to this question. But uh, Bobby, was it physically possible, do you think, for Fotis to do this murder alone and be able to get Jennifer under complete control alone? I imagine she would have put up a fight. And I'll add to that. You know, we've got these um, zip ties, the bras cut. What do you think was going on here? Is this just a brutal struggle in the garage?
0: Well, I think it is possible. Again, there are there are a lot of things that that can be done that you wouldn't think could happen, but I, I think it is possible. Uh, I think the uh, the the bra and the the other items. You know, uh, maybe, uh, as we said before, criminals try to think out all the options here, and maybe there was some thought that if he was to dispose of the body with those items still intact on the body, that the body could decompose and those things could be found uh, down the road and then linked back to the case. I'm not sure exactly what he was thinking about, but he obviously was thinking something uh, because— We've got those things. Uh, we were able to be found. And um, again, you know, we, we kid a little bit that the, the comment that all criminals are stupid is rule number one. Uh, and if rule number one doesn't work, revoke, re- go to rule number two, which says all criminals are stupid. So mm-hmm. at, at, at times we wonder why, uh, as Wendy said a little while ago, uh, what were you thinking? I mean, it just it just doesn't add up, which is why we're here. Uh, talking about this because there are a couple of those nuggets that we just don't have and uh, we'll I'm sure I'm sure we'll get them and be able to seal the deal one way or the other Uh, you know an investigation is about finding the truth so we'll find the truth here at some point and and see which way this goes
1: Uh, Darby Fox special thanks to her she's a child and adolescent family therapist with over 25 years of experience in the new Canaan Connecticut area where all this played out Uh, Her first book was called Rethinking Your Teenager. Interesting question. She does all the stuff on TV, the CNNs, the ABCs, the STSs. Uh, Deep B, look at this. Hi from Portugal, Wendy. Uh, Do you think the state has any smoking gun? This is sort of where we started. This is where we'll end any smoking gun that led to charge her with conspiracy to commit the crime instead of just accessory after the fact. Wendy Murphy is a world expert in domestic violence. She teaches at New England Law Boston, a former visiting scholar at Harvard Law. You can say a lot of things about Wendy, but you can't say mm. she's not smart. Wendy, mm-hmm. before the will uh, uh, kicks in, your answer to this
2: question. Yeah, I, I think the answer is uh, maybe. And I say that because it is a very different animal to charge someone with conspiracy versus accessory after. And what we've heard so far, the fingerprints on the trash bag and, um, and that alone, right. Is, is not conspiracy before the fact it's, it's, it's if anything, accessory after the, um, the so-called alibi list. Could also be an accessory after piece of evidence, because what if it was written after the fact, instead of before the fact. So I have to believe that they have not just more, but a lot more, a lot more. And I think it's going to come in the form of some proof that Traconis was involved in meeting his car, uh, meeting him with Jennifer in the car at the park where her car was found and perhaps being involved in transporting the body. Um, I'm completely making that up. Absolutely making that up because I have no... Report of that. I've not heard that. No one whispered in my ear. But we know somebody met him. We know somebody met him and we know there was someone who helped him at the park. So they must think she was involved at that level because that to me is... Closer in time to when the murder happened, which is when you want to have your quote unquote conspiracy evidence locked down, throwing away stuff after the fact really isn't conspiracy to murder. So I have to believe they have more. I could be wrong, but uh, it would be surprising if they don't have a lot more.
1: We're gonna we're gonna find out. Look at this. Thanks to Dwayne Harris from Detroit for gifting 100 plus memberships this week uh, in honor of his own birthday. Uh, look at this. This is a guy who gives. He does not take. Uh, rare in this day and age. Very, very happy birthday uh, to you. Appreciate that so much. Uh, Bobby McDonald, for those who do not know, uh, he was both a state of Connecticut and the United States probation officer. He spent over 20 years with the United States Secret Service, then spent time with the NBA and is now at the University of New Haven in this region. Uh, Bobby, uh, this trial is supposed to go till like March 1st. Feels like it's taken forever. Uh, at the end, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will. Do you think that the state will get a conviction here in uh, terms of the conspiracy to commit murder? I do.
0: There you go. <laughs> there you go. Anything, anything else to add, Bobby? Anything I, uh, else? I add? do, but let's but let's wait and see. As as Wendy said, there's a lot more to come. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot more stuff that we don't know. A lot more stuff that hasn't been talked about. Uh, a lot more stuff that's being uh, pieced together behind the scenes here too. Uh, send the state in the direction that they're looking to go. So I, I, I think it, I think the answer is going to be. I've been wrong before, but I think the answer is going to be yes.
2: Yeah, and good good for the state that they didn't leak all their stuff. The right. state often does leak. And uh, this, yeah, and we
0: often want more information. And a lot of times it's better off that that information stays put and doesn't come out. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: I, yeah. I mean, the state will often leak if they're if, if they're nefarious and want to infect the jury pool. But they'll also just leak because, you know, they don't want, they don't want the public to think they're going after some right. innocent person. I mean, there are uh, leaks in almost every case. So it's kind of stunning to me that there haven't been leaks in this case in terms of what the real evidence is against her. There's a little bit of stuff out there, but not a lot, not three, three more or whatever's left, you know, six more weeks worth of stuff. So I have to believe there's a lot more to come. And I don't think she's going to put on much of a defense. I suspect she's, this is going to be a reasonable doubt defense. And uh, so that means the state has, a is she going to take the stand
1: Wendy? Is she going to take no, the stand? No,
2: absolutely not. No, no, absolutely no, not. no. And that, and she shouldn't. And that's okay. She has a right not to testify. But it suggests to me that the state has an enormous amount of evidence and we just don't know about it yet,
1: which is good. We're going to we're going to find out real soon. Um, Appreciate these best guests, the best guests in all of true crime tomorrow, 1230 p.m. Speaking of best guests, it is Phil and Scott. Great, Scott, it's your true crime, Phil, 1230 p.m. Eastern. And then we're back all next week. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Connecticut. Love you. Boston, Massachusetts, justice for Jennifer Ford.
4: Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. slash ranks.